0: Scripture reading this morning is in Romans chapter 15. It's often the case that where a passage in a book is found is significant. It's especially so this morning. The text is in Romans 15, which is the second main section of the book of Romans, sometimes called the practical section, beginning at verse 12. I'll explain, as the sermon begins, why we ought not describe it that way. But our text is found in this second main section, beginning in verse chapter 12. This is the Word of God in Romans 15. We then that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak, and not to please ourselves... Let every one of us please his neighbor for his good to edification. For even Christ pleased not himself, but, as it is written, the reproaches of them that reproached thee fell on me. For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. Now the God of patience and consolation grant you to be like-minded one toward another, according to Christ Jesus, that ye may with one mind and one mouth glorify God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Wherefore, receive ye one another, as Christ also received us to the glory of God. Now I say that Jesus Christ was a minister of the circumcision for the truth of God, to confirm the promises made unto the fathers, and that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy. As it is written, For this cause I will confess to thee among the Gentiles, and sing unto thy name. And again, he saith, Rejoice ye Gentiles with his people. And again, Praise the Lord, all ye Gentiles, and laud him, all ye people. And again, Isaiah saith, There shall be a root of Jesse, and he that shall rise to reign over the Gentiles in him shall the gentiles trust now the god of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that ye may abound in hope through the power of the holy ghost and i myself also am persuaded of you my brethren that ye also are full of goodness filled with all knowledge able also to admonish one another nevertheless brethren I have written the more boldly unto you in some sort as putting you in mind because of the grace that is given to me of God, that I should be the minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, ministering the gospel of God, that the offering up of the Gentiles might be acceptable, being sanctified by the Holy Ghost. I have therefore, whereof I may glory through Jesus Christ in those things which pertain to God." For I will not dare to speak of any of those things which Christ hath not wrought by me to make the Gentiles obedient by word and deed, through mighty signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and round about unto Illyricum I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. Yea, so have I strived to preach the gospel, not where Christ was named, lest I should build upon another man's foundation, But as it is written, to whom he was not spoken of, they shall see, and they that have not heard shall understand. For which cause also I have been much hindered from coming to you. But now, having no more place in these parts, and having a great desire these many years to come unto you, whensoever I take my journey into Spain, I will come to you. For I trust to see you in my journey, and to be brought on my way thitherward by you, if first I may be somewhat filled with your company. But now I go unto Jerusalem to minister unto the saints. For it hath pleased them of Macedonia and Achaia to make a certain contribution for the poor saints which are at Jerusalem. It hath pleased them verily, and their debtors they are, for if the Gentiles have been made partakers of their spiritual things, Their duty is also to minister unto them in carnal things. When therefore I have performed this, and have sealed to them this fruit, I will come by you into Spain. And I am sure that when I come unto you, I shall come in the fullness of the blessing of the gospel of Christ. Now I beseech you, brethren, for the Lord Jesus Christ's sake, and for the love of the Spirit, that you strive together with me in your prayers to God for me, that I may be delivered from them that do not believe in Judea, and that my service which I have for Jerusalem may be accepted of the saints, that I may come unto you with joy by the will of God and may with you be refreshed. Now, the God of peace be with you all. Amen. That's the reading of the chapter. The text is verse 14, where Paul says, And I myself also am persuaded of you, my brethren, that ye also are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, able also to admonish one another. Let me read that one more time, because it's not a familiar verse, but it's a very important verse. I myself am persuaded of you, my brethren, that ye also are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, able also to admonish one another. As I indicated, this verse is found in the second main section of the book of Romans, the first section being 1 through 11, what sometimes is called the doctrinal foundation of the book. And then the second section being 12 through 16, which is sometimes described as the practical application of the book. And sometimes, by that distinction between doctrinal and practical, this important section is diminished in importance. And we esteem the doctrinal as very important and the practical as perhaps needed, but perhaps not. And that's to diminish this second part of the book of Romans. If we would instead look at this book of Romans in this term, that what God has done for us in Christ, that's the first section, He also does in us by the Spirit of Christ. Or to use a different template, the God who has justified us by Jesus Christ and that's the subject of the first part of the book of Romans justification the God who justifies us by Jesus Christ also sanctifies us in Jesus Christ and with that distinction between the first half of Romans and the second part of Romans we understand better the value and importance of this section The work that God performs in us, He performs, now listen carefully, it becomes the significant part of this text. The work that He performs in us, He performs by His Word. Not every work that He performs in us is performed by His Word, but the majority of those works. And so when the Apostle begins this second section of Romans, he is exhorting the church. He is admonishing the church. He is warning the church. He is threatening the church. And by all of those means, God works His work in us. And so you think of how the section of Romans goes, beginning at the verse 1 of chapter 12. I beseech you, present your bodies a living sacrifice unto God. That's the beginning of this sanctification section of Romans give your life to God and then he spells it out don't be conformed to this world be transformed verse 3 don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to think but think soberly verses 4 through 8 use your gifts for the welfare of other members verses 9 through 13 be hospitable hospitable give where there are needy in the church. Verses 14 through 18, live peaceably with everyone and do good even to your enemies. And Paul marches along in the doctrine of sanctification and the godly life all the way through this section until he gets to our text when finally, as it were, he sighs and says, but I don't need to continue this since you are able to do this. That is, I don't need to give you all of the exhortations and admonitions to a Christian life because you are able to do it. Read the text again. I am persuaded of you, my brethren, that you also are full of goodness, filled with knowledge, able to admonish one another. In other words... I may come to see you and preach to you the Word of God. I've written a letter to you, which is the inspired Word of God, but I'm not always going to be with you. You may not always either have a pastor for you, and therefore you must know about yourselves that each of you is able to admonish the others. And he grounds that on what is, to me, one of the most amazing statements in all of the book, that is amazing for a Reformed Christian. He says, you, people of God, are full of goodness and filled with knowledge. And that's why you, and not just the preacher, you are able to do this work of exhortation and admonition to the building up of the congregation. The first part of the book, The Doctrinal Foundation, of justification, rooted in God's eternal decree, predestination. The second part of the book, the application of that salvation in us as to the whole of the godly life. The means by which God works that in us is the Word. The Word. Paul begins bringing that Word to the people and then he stops and says, you are able to do this yourselves. So that becomes the theme of the sermon this morning, the believer's ability to admonish, every believer's ability to admonish. Let's see in the first place the amazing truth of that, that we have that ability. In the second place, then the calling to admonish and edify. And then in the third place, the needed persuasion. If in the end we get to that third point and there's any persuasion that's needed any longer. The amazing truth, the edifying calling, and the needed confidence. The amazing truth can be stated very simply with the words of the text. The Roman Christians all had in them, in fact, they were full of goodness and knowledge. God's people are filled with goodness and knowledge. There are three parts of that statement that I want to draw out to make clear what the Apostle is teaching that is so amazing. In the first place, in the child of God, and in every child of God, there is goodness. Goodness. In you. Not the kind of goodness that simply appears on the surface so that Paul is saying, as it were, to the Roman Christians, I've heard about your good works. I've seen some of the things that you've done, that is, from others who've testified about you. I've even met a couple of you in your travels where I was. And I'm aware of the things that you do. He's not talking about outward good works. Because even a non-Christian is able to do good works in that superficial sense of the word. And besides that, the Apostle as we know, had not met yet these Roman Christians and would not be able to make such a blanket statement about all of them. He doesn't mean you are full of good works. He says you are full of goodness. I'm talking about your character. talking about your disposition. I'm talking about the kindness that lies behind your kind deeds and the grace that's in you That lies behind your gracious activity. You are full of goodness. Goodness. He's talking about their character, their qualities, and their disposition. Now let that sink in for a moment. In the child of God is truth. In the child of God is righteousness. In the child of God is love, and the fear of God, and wisdom, and humility, and a desire to bless, and grace. And then the apostle says, and this is still the first item of the three in that main statement, in the child of God is knowledge. And here again, he's not talking about the superficial knowledge that even the devils have who tremble or the kind of knowledge that one of you can have in your mind that enables you to answer all of the questions that the elders ask you in preparation for confession of faith. He's not talking about that kind of knowledge. He's talking about the knowledge of faith that's deep and genuine, spiritual knowledge of God the Father and His creation of us, of God the Son and His redemption of me, of God the Holy Spirit and His sanctification of me. A knowledge that loves the truth. And he means that evidently because he's already said that the unbeliever has a knowledge of God and that unbeliever who has a knowledge of God superficially is going to perish. In the child of God is goodness and knowledge. Second, And to take it another step, the child of God is full of goodness and filled with knowledge. It's one thing to say that you have a little bit of knowledge and a little bit of goodness. It's another thing to say what Paul says here, you people of God are full of goodness. And to understand that, think of the different places in the scripture where these same words are used and it will make it clear. Some negative examples. As a wicked man's eyes are full of adultery, so that there's nothing else that he wants to see. And an unrighteous man is filled with malice and envy and strife and deceit, so that nothing positive exists in him. And a drunken man is full of wine, so that it pervades him, permeates him, dominates him. The child of God is full of goodness. Or to use a couple of positive examples of the use of that word in the New Testament. You remember children when the disciples fished all night and every time they brought up their net it was empty and Jesus said, throw it on the other side of the boat. And when they did, they couldn't even haul it in because it was so full of fish. Not a couple, full to the brim. That's the word that's used to describe our relationship to goodness full of goodness or as a vessel is filled with vinegar so the New Testament says so the child of God is filled and full of goodness or the word that's used to describe knowledge is a little bit different very similar but now emphasizing spread as Jerusalem was filled with the knowledge of Jesus, so you couldn't go here, there, or anywhere without people knowing that Jesus had taught what He did. And as that room in the tabernacle or temple, when the incense was lit, was filled with the fragrance of that incense, or as that upper room where the disciples were gathered on Pentecost, was filled with the sound of a mighty rushing wind, so also the child of God is filled with knowledge. I say, that's astounding. In the child of God is knowledge and goodness. Second, the child of God is full of knowledge and goodness. And if that's not enough, the truth of the Word of God is, you all are. Every child of God is described here. Not just a few select members, but all of them. The members and the office bearers the women and the men, the children and the adults, the new members and the old-timers. Remember how the apostle is speaking to a newly formed church in Rome. It may well be that even the newly elected elders are tempted to say, no, not us, just the ministers. And the apostle Paul says to them, no, you too. And it may be that some of the women may feel inferior and think that's not a description of us, just of the men. And Paul points to the women and says, no, you too. And maybe the children say, well, this is a description of our parents, but not of us. And Paul says, no, you too. And perhaps there's a new member in the congregation who says, I didn't grow up in the church. This doesn't describe me, it describes the old timers. Paul says to them, no, you also and to underline that truth remember who's saying this the apostle Paul trained all of his life at the feet of Gamaliel the most learned doctor in Judaism at that time and then the apostle Paul who spent three years personally with the Lord Jesus being trained to be an apostle the apostle Paul the most capable of all the apostles that ever lived He said to the church, though I have my gifts, so do you. You are full of goodness and filled with knowledge. I say that's an amazing truth. That's a surprising truth. It might not be surprising if I would say that in an Arminian church. Or a Pelagian church, because Arminians and Pelagians look at all men and say naturally they're good. We're good people, all, everybody has goodness in him. But in a Reformed church where we teach the doctrine of depravity and emphasize the doctrine of total depravity, this becomes a surprising truth and teaching. Good, you say? Who's listening to this professor Preach to us. Doesn't he know we are a reformed church? And doesn't he know that the reformed churches hold to the doctrine of depravity? That it's the first in our memorizing of the five points of Calvinism. Is he denying something fundamental of the reformed faith? Are we not supposed instead to teach the depravity of man, the corruption of our nature, the inability for us to do good because we don't have any good in us? Well, the question is put not to me, as your preacher this morning, but to the Spirit of Jesus Christ, who gave Paul to say this. I'm persuaded of you, that you are full of goodness and filled with knowledge. And then if you would ask Paul, Paul, have you not, in the first part of this letter, the doctrinal foundation describe natural man as depraved and only depraved in such a way that quoting the Psalms, you said, the poison of asps is under his lips and his mouth is full of corruption and that there's no one that does good. No, not one. And in fact, Paul, after that, did you not even confess about yourself in Romans 7? I know that in me... That is, in my flesh dwells no good thing. Now are you contradicting yourself when you come in this second section of the book and say that I'm persuaded of you, that you are full of goodness and filled with knowledge? How can you say that about us? And here's where the sermon is very important to listen carefully. What the Apostle is saying here. He says with the form of a verb that emphasizes that number one what we are now is not what we used to be what we are now is the result of something that happened in the past and what happened in the past was not something that we did to ourselves but someone else did to us what we are now is not what we used to be. What we are now is the result of something that happened to us in the past and what happened to us in the past is not our doing, but someone else's doing. That's the perfect passive tense. You all ought to be interested in English grammar. The form of the verb here in the Greek teaches that. That we're different now than what we used to be. What we are now is because something happened to us. And what happened to us was not our doing, but someone else's doing. And it's the simple Gospel truth that Christ came to us. Christ filled us. Christ dominates us. And if the Lord Jesus Christ is the goodness and knowledge of God, and Christ is in us, it's not surprising that the Apostle says that you are full of goodness and filled with knowledge because of Christ in us. It's the simple doctrine of regeneration. A regeneration that we didn't affect in ourselves, but a regeneration that makes us now something that we were not in the past and radically different than what we were in the past. Listen carefully. That's not to deny that there is in us now an old man yet. That's what Paul was describing when he said in Romans 7, there is in me that is in my flesh no good thing. But he goes on to say that we are more than flesh. We have a new man. And that new man is Christ in us. So that when Paul looks at the christian the regenerated christian the believer who's united to because he embraces jesus christ you are full of goodness and filled with knowledge otherwise you can't explain all of the other important passages in the new testament we who were dead are alive ephesians Chapter 2. Were his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works? Or 2 Corinthians 5.17. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. All things are become new. New. So that when Paul writes to the church at Galatians uh, of Galatia, the churches of Galatia, he can say, One of the fruits of the Spirit is goodness. Goodness. Now before we go on to the second point of the sermon, we need to see two very important things. Implied in this passage, and that's probably not the best way to put it, is the truth, the Reformation truth, of the priesthood of believers. In fact, the truth of the priesthood of believers is based on this and other texts like it. What I mean by that is that the church B.C. is not what the church A.D. is. What the church before Christ was is different than what the church after Christ now is. What the church before Christ was was very, very poor in certain respects, there were only a few people who held an office that enabled them to do mighty works. Think of the three offices of prophet, priest, and king. As regards the office of prophet, how many were there? Samuel, David, Isaiah, Daniel... Just a select few who by inspiration of God were filled with the Spirit and able, able to teach. And able to teach in a powerful way. And for the rest, the people weren't prophets. And as to the office of priest, there were just a few priests, Aaron and Samuel again, and others like that, who were able, as it were, to take the people by the hand and having offered the sacrifice for them, lead them into the presence of God lead them to God. Just a few who were able to do that. And for the rest, they weren't. And as to the office of king, we know that, and judge, there were just a few. Moses, Samson, David, Solomon, who were strong and could do exploits, who were able to fight the battle of faith for the people of God and gain victory. And for the rest, the people of God were not kings. Just a few prophets, priests, and kings but in the New Testament A.D. the Spirit has been given to all of the people of God so that all of us are prophets able to speak all of us are priests able to lead others to Jesus Christ pointing to his sacrifice as the access to God and all of us are kings able for ourselves to subdue our sinful nature and help others in the battle of faith. All of us are. That reality in the New Testament was prophesied in a very important passage in the Old Testament that's somewhat unfamiliar. When the Israelites were on their way from Egypt to Canaan, Moses was their leader. He was the judge. He was the prophet. Den his son, his brother was the priest. And all of the work of that nation fell on Moses until he came to a certain point when he cried out to God, I can't do this. I simply can't take it. They come to me with all of their problems, their burdens, their cumbrances, and I try to help them, but I'm simply not able. I'm going to be broken if I have to keep doing this. So God said to Moses, you find the 70 men in Israel who are known to be leaders and officers in the church, Bring them to you and I will meet you there and I'll take the spirit that's on you and I'll put it on them and they'll be able to help you. Now, we know that. That's the beginning of the office of elder in the Old Testament. What we don't often remember is that at that time, two of those 70 were not near Moses, but out in the camp and prophesying there. And when a young man heard them prophesying out in the camp, he ran, alarmed, to Moses and said, Eldad and Medad are prophesying out there, and they ought not be. And the response of Moses was marvelous. I would to God that everybody were prophets. I wish to God that not just those two and the other 68 were able to speak, but that every child of God was. And that prayer of Moses was answered at Pentecost so that all of us, all of us in the church are prophets and priests and kings. That's the first important implication of this amazing truth. And the second, we've already said, but I need to underline it. There's a very serious misconception that needs to be corrected among us. And that misconception is that we're depraved and only depraved. That we are dead in sin, unable to do anything, period. In the 20 years that I've been out of the pastoral ministry and teaching catechism for vacant churches, including yours some years ago, I always teach the doctrinal catechism classes, Heidelberg Catechism and Essentials, and in Heidelberg Catechism, obviously, you get to Lord's Day 3 very quickly in the doctrine of total depravity. And I ask the young people, the 8th and ninth graders, are you able to do any good? And some of them boldly say, of course not. And when I frown at them, and the others see I'm asking for perhaps a little bit different answer, they become very nervous. Are you able to do any good? And most of them would say, of course not. Are you dead in sin, I ask? And then they begin thinking, or are you alive in the Lord Jesus Christ? Is there any good in you at all? And if we are tempted to answer no, we're making a very serious mistake. There is nothing good in you naturally. There is nothing good in you that your parents gave you according to your first birth. But you have been born again and Christ is in you. And therefore you are, that's the language of the text, able, able to do good because in you is good. Not naturally, but supernaturally. because of that truth that we are full of goodness and filled with knowledge we have the ability to do what the apostle has been doing and now says I can stop I've been admonishing you now you take over and when you look at your neighbor who needs to be admonished you do it I'm on my way to Jerusalem on my way back from Jerusalem I'm going to pass by you again on my way to Spain I'll see you then." But I'm going to be gone, and you now have this calling. You may have a preacher. He's going to be the one who stands here. And God uses that means as the main means to administer grace. But you also, also are able to do this work of admonishing. Now that word admonish in Scripture can mean two very different things. Not essentially different, but quite different nevertheless. The word admonish can mean something very narrow, and then it's negative. And it can mean something very broad, and then it includes some positive things. And you all understand the narrow negative explanation of that word where the one who admonishes wags his finger at someone who's sinning. And that's how we use that word in English too. Rebuke. 1 Corinthians 10, 11, The Old Testament history was written for our admonition they committed fornication don't you they lusted after other gods and the flesh of Egypt don't you admonition the Old Testament was written for or Titus 310 reject the heretic after the first and second admonition the heretic teaches heresy rebuke him warn him that's negative that's important that's what admonition means 1 Corinthians 4.14, Paul does not shame them, but he does warn them. 1 Thessalonians 5.14, the unruly must be warned. And so, if you read Romans 12 through 15, you'll find that in this section, there are also some of those warnings. Very serious, sharp, stern warnings. And you not as office bearers, but as members, you, women, as well as men, and children, as well as adults, and new members, as well as old members, you, you have the ability and the calling to admonish others in the congregation in that respect. When a brother errs, walks in sin, and you know it, then it's your calling to speak to him or her. If you know someone's given to wine, don't think of all of the other people who ought to be talking to him or her. You are full of goodness and filled with knowledge, able also to admonish him or her. Matthew 18 makes that plain. We ought not question this at all. If a brother sins against you, then it's your calling to tell him his sin. And that word tell is even stronger than the word admonish. It means to convict, to reprove. It's your calling to go to him by yourself and speak to him or her of his sin. But the word admonish does not always mean that narrow negative meaning with the wagging of the finger in rebuke, it also has a very positive and broad meaning. And it means literally simply to put into the mind of someone or to remind them. And that opens up the calling of the child of God so broadly. It includes all of the promises, all of the hope, all of the comfort of scripture that you have in your mouth. Because it's in your heart and mind that you are able to speak to the other members in the congregation in all of their needs. Children, Ephesians 6, 4, are brought up in the admonition of the Lord. And of course you understand that that's not that narrow negative meaning that dad and mom are always rebuking and reproving and threatening. It means everything in the gospel that's taught them. Colossians 3.16 says that when we sing, and that's the whole of the Psalms, we teach and admonish one another. Now, there are a few rebukes in the Psalms that we speak to each other, but the Psalms are full of important instructions and comforts of the Word of God. And that's why Paul used that word when he talks about the three years, day and night in Ephesus, that he admonished them with tears. And you may be sure he was not only rebuking and reproving them. So the child of God looks at the book of Romans 12 through 15 and sees, in addition to those few threats and warnings in that section, it's full of positive callings, exhortation, and comfort. And the child of God is able to do that. Speak to the discouraged, to the depressed. Talk to the man who lost his wife or the woman or husband whether that's by death or divorce, you have the ability to comfort. The member who endures pain needs a Word of God. You can bring it to them. The children whose parents are not getting along well and are in great distress, you have the ability to speak to them. And every one of you is able. And now the sermon becomes very practical and begins with the office bearers because... Though you might say the application isn't for them, it's for everyone else, the persuasion that Paul speaks of in his own heart needs to go to the elders and deacons too. You may be tempted, men, and the congregation may be tempted to agree that the one really who has the ability to do this is the man who stands behind the pulpit. And Paul is saying, No, you, elders, have that ability. You can. You may. You must. And you members of the congregation mustn't imagine that in your troubles you have, and they may be serious troubles, you have two and only two options. Ask the minister for help or find a professional counselor for you in your distress. You have skipped a step. The elders are the ones who, by the grace of God, of the calling to speak to you in your troubles. They can, they may, they must, and you need to go there. So the elders are going to go to the hospital and comfort them. They're going to go to those who are just depressed and open up the Word of God to them. They're going to speak to those that are wayward and impenitent in their sin and warn them and call them And threaten them. Because the elders are going to serve in their office as kings. Who are also prophets who speak. And priests who lead the people of God to Christ. The elders do all of that work. Don't ever dismiss the importance of elders. And then fathers. I suppose today after you eat your Sunday dinner you're going to engage in your practice of leading and family devotions and you will open the word of God and as a prophet you will read that word of God and then you may be tempted simply to close that word of God and pray but the exhortation of the scripture to you today is leave it open and apply that word of God to your wife in comfort and help for her and encouragement for her and to your children and if you have grandchildren, to them. I'm persuaded of you, my brothers, that you are able to do that because you are full of goodness and filled with knowledge. Your wife knows that, who has children, because that's her full-time calling. She leads the little ones to Jesus. She opens the Word of God before school while you're gone to work making a living. She opens that Word of God before school and reads it to them, and applies it to them, and calls them with admonitions to be godly, to work hard, to listen to the teachers, and to be kind to the other children. Moms do that. And even when the children get older, moms are able to do that. Young people, you are too. And not just at Young People's Society, but the application can be made for that too. At our Bible studies... All of you are not called to speak, but all of you can. But I want to address the young people for a moment this morning. When you go back to school next week, and you see one of your classmates who's hurting because their parents are not together anymore, Just think for a moment what that would feel like for you. And then ask yourself for a moment whether it's good for you if you were in that situation to have no one say anything to you. And what a blessing it may be to you to have somebody speak to you, a friend. Young people, that closed circle that you live in, open it up. And go to that young man or young woman and embrace them and speak to them the word of comfort of the gospel. Or that young person who's depressed, maybe because of a broken home, maybe because of something else. And in that depression reacts in a way that makes you say, I don't want to talk to them. Just remember, that's probably a signal that they need more than ever that you say something to them speak to them you have the ability to do that young people you know of a another young person in school who's doing things he ought not or she with regard to the internet or alcohol you have the ability you have the calling to speak I'm persuaded of you young people that you are full of goodness and filled with knowledge able to admonish your classmates in school you are all prophets you're all priests and you're all kings now a couple of things very important by way of reminder what comes out of your mouth when you do that must be what is in you through Jesus Christ what fills you the knowledge of God and Jesus Christ from His Word. The goodness of God in Jesus Christ, what fills you must come out of you. It's not what you think they need to hear you speak to them. It's what Christ thinks they need to hear that you speak to them. So, whether you open your Bible with them or simply have a verse in your mind that you've memorized that you speak to them, bring them the Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ died for us. He rose again for us. He returned again to us and lives in us. And we're all able to do what God calls us to do by that grace. Speak to them what is in you and nothing more. Just as you hold me and everyone who stands behind this pulpit, to the standard of what the man in the consistory room said before we came in here. God, don't let him speak his opinion. And I'm very thankful for that prayer. Every time it's prayed, let him speak thy word. So pray with regard to your speaking to your friends and neighbors and acquaintances. Maybe that raises some questions. And one of the questions would be, does that mean that automatically everyone is able to do this? And that would be a mistake too, to imagine that anyone just because he's a confessing believer is able. No implied here is all catechetical instruction. Implied here is listening to sermons. Implied here is personal devotions and family worship by which we are filled with goodness and full of knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ implied here is not that everyone is automatically able to do this but is able to do this as they are living in the church maybe you say does this not diminish the importance of the special offices if you say that this man behind the pulpit is able to speak the word of God as a means of grace and all of us are able to speak the word of God as a means of grace why the special offices and that's a good question it's a very important question there's always the danger of diminishing the importance of the special offices with the truth of the office of all believers you mustn't do that and say that we don't need missionaries because everybody's a missionary. We don't need preachers because everybody's able to speak the Word of God. You mustn't do that. The Word of God makes clear there are special offices of minister and elder and deacon. But there's another mistake, and that is that we forget that in addition to the special offices, there are also these offices. Perhaps you ask, well if everyone is able to give counsel to people in trouble are unqualified people going to think that they're more qualified than they are and are unqualified people going to give damaging counsel well no because those who are qualified by the spirit of Christ in them will know their limits and will direct you to the minister or to the elders and the elders to others if they are aware of that No, we need qualified, specialized ministers and elders and others too. We may use counselors. We ought to at times. But perhaps this, perhaps this. You know a man with a drinking problem. And you don't say anything because someone else ought to. And you go for a year and then two years and you wonder why no one is talking to him why the elders aren't getting on this and then after 10 years his marriage falls apart because alcohol loosened the restraints on his eyes that wandered and his tongue in the home so that he misused and abused his wife and you say about what you ought to have done 10 years ago why didn't I or you young people See that depressed young person. And whether you know why or why, uh, don't know why they're depressed, you don't say anything. You keep your group closed and say he wouldn't fit or she wouldn't fit. And then after a couple of years, you see what happened to him or her. And you ask yourself why you didn't say anything. You know a couple that doesn't restrain their children. They're soft. They're lenient. They're pushovers, and the children know it. And you see those wild children, and you smile at that wildness when they're young, and then five years or so pass, and you see those wild children become wild young people, and rebellious young people, and trouble for their parents. And though the parents ought to have done something, you ought to have also And when they leave the church in rebellion against not only their parents but their elders, then you have to ask yourself the question, why didn't you? You had the ability, full of goodness and filled with knowledge. Wouldn't it be a wonderful thing if everyone embraced this truth? The men and the women and the young people and the children that we all embrace this truth. Let me just point out one of those. There are Miriams among us, women. Deborahs and Lydias and Phoebes and Hannahs and Mary's and Priscilla's and Martha's and Dorcas's. How many women aren't out there who probably don't uh, hanker after being in the pulpit but realize that they have gifts and the elders and deacons are not asking them to use their gifts in special ways. We ought to do that. Take into the number. Today too, women who are mature, experienced, godly, to help the elders do and the deacons do what the elders and deacons simply can't do because they're men. I'm persuaded of you, my brethren, Paul says. And I imagine him saying this to the church at Corinth because he knew the nature of God's people. He knew the natural tendency of us to lack confidence. Me? Compared to you, Paul? No, you just do it, Paul. Paul. You just do it. You were trained in the Old Testament all your life. You spent three years with... You do it, Paul. And that's where Paul comes and says, I'm persuaded of you. I know your doubts and hesitations. I'm persuaded of you. So don't doubt, people of God. Take up this work. Shall we? All of us? Let's be bold by the Spirit of God. Let's be qualified more and more. And if you need to know, I often find even as a trained seminary professor and pastor for 40 years now, I find, and you think I ought to be the one most able to do this, I often find that the word I bring to people and their needs is the very word that God gave me that morning in my own personal worship. And if that's true for me, it can be true for you too. I'm persuaded of you my brothers and sisters and children and young people, that you are able and that God will use you for the good of all of the other members to bring Christ to them. Amen. Our Father which art in heaven, we thank Thee for Thy Word. May we know the Lord Jesus Christ not only for us but in us may we embrace the truth that there is for us righteousness imputed and may we also embrace the truth that there is for us holiness imparted so that we are able to know and speak and act in a way that is useful for thy church now send us home with thy blessing O god forgive our sins of speaking and of hearing for jesus sake we pray Amen.